Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone that our CMBH 12-week immersion program is open for fall application to anyone in Ontario. This is our popular medically integrated diet, exercise, and lifestyle program for people who struggle with their weight and metabolic health. Over the 12 weeks, you will get a physician's consultation and follow-up with a cardiometabolic health specialist. You'll get Dr. Appleton's empowered health report. You'll get a full review of your medical history, family history, and any medications you are currently taking, a system-by-system health assessment, including cardiovascular panel, lipids, kidneys, glucose metabolism, immune function, blood counts, and more. You'll get comprehensive lab tests, advanced diagnostics, and interpretation, prescriptions, if required, chronic disease risk assessment and management plan and medical management of any diagnosed conditions. Then you will also receive your very own health coach who will carry out Dr. Appleton's recommended plan. You will get diet, exercise and lifestyle coaching that can be done anywhere. You'll get support and accountability to keep you on track it is the full comprehensive package for people who want to take control of their health and change their lives the best part almost 70 percent of this program is covered by ohip for ontario residents and you do not need a physician's referral we will do the referral for you and it is all included if you're serious about taking care of your health please fill out the application form in the episode notes to see if you qualify or go to andrewappletonmd.ca that's all together one word andrewappletonmd.ca slash cmbh we hope to see you there Welcome to the Cardio Metabolic Health Podcast, where we teach you how to navigate the complex world of diet and exercise with medical and pragmatic views of the human body. Join Dr. Andrew Appleton and me as we give you the tools and resources to prevent and reverse lifestyle-driven diseases while optimizing fitness and getting the body you want. Enjoy today's episode. people anecdotally reported less carbohydrate consumption naturally after the breakfast because i think uh, if you have a more pro because it's what takes its place yeah i think it was just the protein it was just like the high fat protein breakfast versus the high carbohydrate breakfast and eat whatever you want for the rest of the day and the people who didn't have the high carbohydrate breakfast reported uh not wanting the carbohydrates going longer without yeah. food before they were hungry all the things that, and that there, you would expect there have been studies that you know it's basically the same thing that are looking at eating a high protein breakfast which i guess necessarily means it's probably lower in carbs yeah and their satiety is greater throughout the rest of the day and again they naturally have a caloric reduction because of that um and my my patients report the same thing like if they if they change their breakfast if they don't have their bowl of cereal and slice of toast then they're not hungry by 10 10 o'clock yeah Yeah. i get it it's challenging like breakfast is challenging just because it's the time of day when people have the least amount of of time to make something and get up earlier (laughs) yeah and those (laughs) foods like protein is just less appeal like i get that it's less appealing first thing in the day yeah suppose 
I, I mean, I would assume most people don't wake up with like a ravenous appetite. I do. Uh, you do? Yeah. Really? Oh yeah. I don't. I'm starving in the morning. I don't at all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just even with my kids, right? Like, luckily, my kids like eggs. Yeah. They have eggs every day yeah. in some form. Yeah. My like, son loves eggs. My daughter wouldn't wouldn't touch it. Yeah. But yeah. aside from that, I don't even know what I'd make them. Like, my kids aren't going to eat steak <laughs> for breakfast. Like, they're they'll have this zero surprises interest. me actually. They'll have zero. <laughs> they'll have zero interest in that. Yeah. So every day they'll have just like, a nice rare steak leaking yeah. all over your plate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some form of egg, hard boiled, scrambled. Sometimes pancakes. So versatile. Sometimes yeah. go crazy, make uh, make French toast, something like that. Yeah. Then some kind of fruit, and then uh, like they can have a piece of bread with yeah. something on it. My too. daughter would eat pancakes until she, you know, <laughs> turned into one. But yeah. we we batch make pancakes on the weekend, gotcha. and then freeze them, and then you just pop them in the toaster, and you've got them for the entire week. So that's a nice <laughs> look at that. Quick breakfast hack for the busy parent. Yeah, I used to make it every day. Like I used to make pancakes every day. And yeah. it was just eggs, oatmeal, blended. Sometimes eggs, oatmeal, a little banana blended yeah. up. But yeah. it's harder to cook that without burning the pancake when you got like a little bit of sugar in there. Yeah. But then like my kids just eventually got so sick of it. They couldn't do it anymore. So I had to become more versatile because yeah. it's the easiest way to get a kid to eat like two to three eggs. Is have it hide it in something? Yeah, because yeah, I sure. like I don't do traditional pancakes, of course, which is like water, cream, flour, and then one egg. It's like six, seven eggs between the three kids, yeah. a cup of oatmeal, um, and that's it. Yeah, and it works. Anyways, we're recording, so oh, I guess we're kind of talking about glucose metabolic health. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's appropriate. Yeah. yeah. So, what is in this jar over here? Is that uh, oh? Is that your, people you, always want to know. Is that your it urine like, sample? Uh, or? Well, it looks more like uh, infant diarrhea. <laughs> Tommy, so yeah, people that's are a good quite interested. Tommy's in holding a uh, one quart mason jar filled with a muddy brown substance. Yes, it is. Uh, it is just like a whey protein, turmeric, just a little bit, which is what gives it that disgusting color. And then there's some adaptogens in there. Ooh, so some adaptogens some, that made up uh, word that yeah. has no definition. Ashwagandha. Yeah. Some mushrooms in there of various kinds. Not the fun kinds, the kinds that are supposed to increase energy levels. Have you heard of the product called mud water? Oh my god. The first time I saw that, I was like, you need a new marketing team. You've <laughs> made this thing that looks disgusting. You've called it mud water because it looks yeah. like mud. Right. Which is just going to make people think that probably tastes like mud, which it probably does. And then you called it mud water. Yeah, no <laughs> one's buying that. The first time I saw it, it was like, "This is who's put their money behind this thing?" But yes, I've seen mud water. Yeah, I think it is the worst marketing campaign in the health <laughs> and fitness industry that I have ever seen. Interesting. I wonder yeah, how many like, adaptogens. Just call it, it shit water. <laughs> Yeah, it, it looks like shit, but I promise it doesn't taste like it, but we're going to call yeah. it shit water. <laughs> Incidentally, it looks the same coming out. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that could be my marketing campaign for this. But again, no one would ever totally. drink it. And I like, you have to reconstitute it every time you pick it up. Yeah. It sediments out. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't matter what I do. Like, that, nothing in there is blending up. I just got to no. shake it a lot. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sure it's... Uh, 
I'm I mean, sure walking around a gym, you got to be shaking some sort of you know pre or post workout solution, well, right? And in a glass jar too. So yeah. like, I'll be riding the bike, warming up with it teetering on like the center, the center brace of yeah. the of the bike, One just waiting to bead smash of sweat all drops on it, and it's gone. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Um. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about uh, self experimentation. If you know what I mean, <laughs> I, I know, <laughs> but I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah, so I had a I had a week off last week, so naturally I did what any reasonable person would do, and I used a continuous glucose monitor and went and had a bunch of blood work done on myself. Yeah, yeah, um, but it was yeah, so it was it was very interesting, and it's I think it's um, it's just a good example how you really don't know what's going on. And even though you might be, you know, you, you're like, I'm the healthiest person out there. And then you look under the hood and you get some insight and you're like, okay, there are some things here that are, uh, that's actually really useful information that you would have no idea about otherwise, unless you actually did some of the testing that's, that's available. Obviously, you know, knowing for someone like me, it's a little easier to get access to these things than for, uh, for most people out there, unless they have a, a willing physician to go along for the ride. Um, but the first thing, so I, I used um, a continuous glucose monitor. I know you've you've experimented with this as well. But uh, so so CGM or continuous glucose monitoring, just for for the audience, is a device that you you stick to the back of your arm. It's a, a sensor about the size of a toonie, uh, and it has a little filament that sits in your subcutaneous tissue and basically just samples your blood glucose levels continuously and then you just use your smartphone with a, a Bluetooth pickup uh, to read what your blood glucose is and you can do that as many times as you want every day so for you know forever diabetic patients who wanted to check their glucose levels have to do a finger stick so that means they have to have a something called a glucometer which is a handheld device they have to have a lancet, which is a little uh, pinprick device, and they have to poke that into the end of their finger, and then they have to squeeze out a drop of blood onto a test strip, and then that test strip goes into the glucometer, and then a few seconds later, it'll give you your blood glucose read. So obviously a little bit of a, a labor-intensive and uncomfortable process having to poke your finger multiple times per day, uh, especially for people who are on insulin or other medications for diabetes that are going to potentially lower their blood glucose too far as a side effect, uh, then this is a, you know, it, it's a safety measure to know that your blood glucose isn't going too low, but also isn't going way too high and you need to take additional medication or, or adapt your, your diet. So that's been how it is forever. And so some companies have created these devices. So the one I used was um, Abbott's Freestyle Libra 2. Uh, and yeah, it just does all of that work, but just sits on your arm. You don't have to poke your finger. Now, of course, if, if you are thinking that how you're feeling does not match what you're getting as a reading, then if you are diabetic <coughs> and at risk for lows, then you should absolutely double check uh, with a finger stick read. So that's sort of the safety proviso for people who are using it. But uh, and right now, in terms of coverage for these devices, uh, it's only covered under OHIP or private insurance if you have a diagnosis of diabetes and you're on insulin therapy. So the question becomes, that's great, and it, for sure it makes total sense in that population, but is there a use for this outside of that population to, say, prevent somebody from becoming diabetic by learning 
about what their blood glucose does in response to food uh, or exercise or stress and all of the other things. So that's the, the lens through which I was looking at it by, by using it and sort of asking myself, is this something that I would consider using <clears throat> or recommending that my patients who don't have diabetes could use and get some value out of? Yeah, I would think especially with, uh, with private insurance, it's something that, that should be covered under that umbrella. Um, it, I just want to go back. What do you know about the accuracy? Because it's not measuring blood. Right, it's uh, subcutaneous fluid. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I know there's got to be some there's got to be some differential there between you know, what you would read in your blood versus what you would read in in the surrounding fluid. Um, so, do you know how how tightly correlated those two metrics are? Uh, well, from from a safety standpoint, to convince Health Canada to get this out there as a as a medical device that's covered under insurance, then they they have to validate it and make sure that it is actually going to enhance safety and not put people at additional risk. So for sure, those the studies have been done to make sure that it does correlate within an acceptable range of error. Uh, but of course, they have to provide in their product insert that you really should double check. This particular one, the Libra 2, doesn't have um, a calibration option. So if you, at least I don't think it does, if, if you check your finger stick glucose and it's different, you can't like change the device to say, no, no, it's actually this. Uh, I know there are some other ones out there, like the Dexcom G6 actually does have that option. Yeah. Um, but you see that, I, I think I've only ever seen one person wearing that um, in London who's a nurse at the hospital. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, it, it should be relatively tightly correlated. And, you know, interestingly, it gives you, after a few days, uh, a projected or estimated hemoglobin A1c, which is that average blood glucose value uh, that spans the the lifespan of your red blood cells, so 90 to 120 days. So it kind of gives you a three to four month average blood glucose level. Um, so for diabetics, uh, the uh, percentage above 6.5 is in the diabetic range, 6 to 6.4 is pre-diabetic, and then below that is kind of where you want to be. So it's, it projected that I would have a hemoglobin A1C of 5.2%, and that's exactly what it was when I actually had my blood work done. Yeah, I would think that uh, someone who's who would qualify as pre-diabetic, that would be the time where you'd want them to have something like this, especially when you think about once someone starts to medicate something like type 2 diabetes with insulin then the metric to me becomes much less useful because i know it's essentially they want diabetics to use it for safety for safety exactly but if you give it to someone who's pre-diabetic they're gonna manage those metrics with diet maybe exercise but from a dietary perspective it's it's most likely to change someone's food choices whereas once someone's already a diabetic and a medicated diabetic they're going to manage it with medication more than food or follow the food management system of oh if your blood sugar is low you need to get some sugar in you <laughs> right which is like is i guess from a safety safety perspective it's the same as, as doing finger pricks right but you're not really helping that person manage their disease in the most helpful way when you're saying oh when it's uh, high take some insulin when it's low eat some sugar and now you have a more convenient way to know when you should be doing those two exactly. things. Exactly. So I'm way more interested in this as a behavior management tool in order to make good 
nutrition choices to prevent you from ever becoming diabetic in the first place, which is sort of the whole mission of all of this cardiometabolic health stuff. Uh, and so it's it's definitely helpful for that. So just in in my wearing it, so what what I you notice which foods have or create the biggest glucose excursions, and that's what you want to avoid because when your glucose spikes, so does your insulin, and it's the insulin that's causing the major metabolic problems that we want to avoid. So you want to reduce your total exposure to higher insulin levels in your blood over time. So I would actually push back who I think would benefit from this a little bit further than the pre-diabetic. So anybody who's got insulin resistance or evidence of insulin resistance just by a high fasting serum insulin level or an elevated uh, insulin resistance index, then those are the people who I think would really benefit from it. And their hemoglobin A1Cs could be anywhere from you know 5.4 to 6. They're not even in the pre-diabetic window. Yeah, I would, I would agree. It's just I think there would be an opportunity to convince coverage for pre-diabetics. Oh, sure. But because just, it's a diagnosable right, thing. Yeah. Right. Because anyone who's overweight should realistically or, or could realistically benefit from one of these. And you're right from a behavior change perspective because we know that a big barrier, especially when it comes to diet and exercise, is that feedback comes long after the action. Where if you want someone to be enthusiastic and dedicated to taking specific actions to reach a specific outcome, the more tightly correlated the feedback is to the actions that are being taken, the more likely that person is to be consistent in the actions, whether that's like the food that they eat or the exercise they do, where that's where things like this become helpful. Because if someone knows immediately after they've eaten something, what the effect is on something like blood sugar. And the effect can can be surprising within certain categories of food. Some things that you would expect uh, to be a problem for you, your your body seems to deal with quite well. And then some things that you wouldn't expect to, to be an issue at all seem to trigger these high spikes in glucose. And there's, there's a, a pretty significant level of individual uh, response to the foods that we eat as well. That's right. Yeah, and so having that immediate feedback. And it's also interesting to see how it correlates with how you feel. So just as an example, so a food that you would expect is probably going to increase your blood sugar levels would be like pasta or so we had a we had a meal of not pasta but gnocchi and within 15 minutes my sugar was close to 8. So, okay, so so an in-range sugar is between 4 and 10, so that's for the diabetic population. That's kind of sort of where you want to keep your blood sugar, well, more like 6 to 10 if you're on blood glucose-lowering medications. So that's kind of the quote-unquote healthy range. So ideally, to me, between 4 and 8 is probably the, the healthy range of where you should be most of the time. So you eat a meal like that. My average blood glucose is you know, probably about 5.6 over the course of a 24-hour period. After that meal, it goes up to 8 within 15 minutes. And then you know that sort of pasta-heavy, tired feeling you get like 30 minutes after that? Well, guess what? You check your sugar. It's now 4.7. So you can see the really quick rise and fall, which on one hand is good because that tells me that I'm insulin sensitive. So that spike of insulin did drop my sugar successfully, but it actually probably dropped it a little bit further than it actually needed to, to the point where you're starting to feel that sluggish, heavy feeling. You go, okay, you know, that's, that's good feedback. And that's sort of exactly what I would expect from a meal like that. 
Whereas if I eat something that's just, you know, I've got some some meats and some vegetables and maybe like some whole grain, something like quinoa, then it doesn't really affect my blood sugar at all afterwards. So it's, yeah, it's very, very interesting. Yeah. And, and while I haven't done this in five or six years, so lots can change in that span of time. I remember that food could not change my blood sugar. What, what, how far did you go with it? Like, did you shotgun a can of Coke? I wouldn't do anything <laughs> like that, but I would eat, uh, like yeah. I did, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, Rob Wolf's like carb, uh, car carb tolerance testing protocol of just no. like different types of carbohydrates, like essentially 50 grams testing 50 grams of of specific carbohydrates, yeah, and then seeing uh, how your how your body and your your blood sugar reacts to those. So I did it with tons of different types of carbohydrates, all healthy kinds, because I don't really care what my response is to something that I'm never going to consume. Um, I guess, you, you know, it would be interesting to see, but it would be like 50 grams of carbohydrates from potatoes, 50 grams from bananas, 50 grams from rice, 50 gra grams from, you know, different types of fruits. Yeah. So I did that as well as like any mixed meals that I would usually eat, okay. uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, things like that. My blood sugar would only go down. Like when I would eat, my blood sugar would consistently drop below what the baseline was before I was eating, which is where I'd like... You know, someday I hope they have one of these that tests both the insulin response and uh, which I, I'm sure is not technologically possible right now, but uh, test the blood sugar plus the insulin response, because I yeah. have I have no way of knowing if it's just my insulin response is so quick that it doesn't even really read the blood sugar or if my blood sugar. I think it's unlikely that there's no real fluctuation in the blood sugar, yeah. especially if it's so going the down. The insulin's it's, it's a much harder molecule to to pin down because it's a larger hormone molecule that's you know you basically need uh, an assay to figure out what those levels are. So yeah. the closest we can come for that is doing um, an an insulin glucose tolerance test. So most people have probably heard of the like the seventy five gram oral glucose tolerance test where you go in, you drink this gross seventy five grams of glucose. They check your fasting sugar and then they check it, you know, two hours later and you go, okay, well, if your sugar's elevated at that time, then that could be confirmatory of diabetes or prediabetes or whatever. So the added value is adding the insulin component and then doing serial measurements. So I've sent a few patients for this in the past few months and it's been quite insightful for them because we you're, you get numbers back from fasting blood work and you go, you know, there's some indication here that there's some insulin resistance, but I'm not sure how bad it is. So you send them for this test and it gives you a, a fasting glucose and a fasting insulin. And then it measures both again at half an hour, one hour and two hours. And what should happen is your insulin peaks at 30 minutes and then it comes down sort of, you know, probably a bigger drop at an hour and then it continues to come down at two hours if you have insulin resistance it could not peak actually all the way until two hours or it'll shoot up but then stay up for the entire time course even though your sugar could be totally normal so that tells you in order to keep your sugar in a normal range where most interpretations would be you're fine your sugar didn't go up two hours later you don't have diabetes great go on about your day yeah, but my insulin is still like literally five to 10 times higher than it should be when I'm fasting. 
So that's that's a problem. And so the, those kinds of tests can be you know su super insightful, but just aren't typically done. Yeah, we should probably take a moment and explain to people the relationship between blood sugar and insulin. Um, so when you when you consume any food, you know this particularly carbohydrates, but but any food, especially in mixed meals, is going to increase your blood sugar. Your blood sugar basically has to it performs various functions in the body. You know, the, the primary one people think about is the brain requires glucose to, to operate. So you eat food the when you break that food down, ends up in the bloodstream. So a certain amount of, of glucose is going to end up in your bloodstream. And then in order to shuttle that glucose out of the bloodstream, number one, because too high of a concentration is toxic for human beings. And number two, something has to move the blood sugar out of the bloodstream and where it needs to go. That's what insulin does. So your body produces insulin in order to essentially move that glucose to where it needs to go, to where it can be most helpful and excess gets stored as body fat. Uh, and when you talk about insulin resistance and, and how this becomes a problem is that when, you know, primarily when people constantly over consume high sugar foods and are constantly pushing up their blood sugar, insulin becomes less responsive or less sensitive in that you have to start producing more and more and more and more insulin in order to do the job that much less insulin would do in a healthy person. And that has its own set of consequences because when you're overproducing a hormone like insulin, it's going to come at a cost as well. So, and, and this is also what, uh, you know, type two diabetes is, is that, uh, is losing that sensitivity to insulin. Yeah. So you're producing more and more and more and more, and it's becoming less effective at getting blood sugar yeah. down, which is why people's blood sugar rises and they have these crazy yeah. swings. Yeah, sim yeah, simply put, it's it's a storage hormone, and what's everyone's favorite form of energy storage in the human body? It's fat, right? Because it's it's an efficient vehicle for storage, and it's not just the fat that you see; it's fat inside your cells, and it's that intracellular fat that actually interferes with that insulin signaling pathway that creates the resistance, and so you need more and more insulin. But then the other problem is insulin has other effects. It's actually damaging to the lining of your blood vessels and it's pro-inflammatory and it's pro-weight gain and, and all these other factors that we want to avoid. So it's you know very, very useful to, to use a tool like continuous glucose monitoring or at the very least knowing what your fasting insulin is or going for one of these oral insulin glucose tolerance tests which your doctor can order. It's OHIP insured if you're a patient in Ontario. Like there's there's really no barrier to getting these things done as long as you have access to a physician. And for the continuous glucose monitor, like if nobody's, if you don't qualify for coverage, you can still pay for one. Like literally one sensor lasts two weeks and it's like 90 bucks or something. You can just, you don't need a prescription. You can just buy it at a pharmacy. You go to Costco and you'll probably get the best price around. If you want to just try it out and, and experiment. Like there's there's honestly really no harm in doing that as long as you're not, you know, using it off label for that you actually are diabetic and just trying to self-treat, then you should probably have a physician involved. Um, but yeah, I think it's just very, very interesting. Yeah, and most people are pretty routine with what they're doing day to day and what they're eating. Yeah. There might be uh, there might be an observational bias where like when you're starting to track stuff, it immediately changes. Well, so, yeah, the, what the you're key is eat. the key is don't change anything. Yeah. For the first week. Yeah. Just track it 
and check it 15 minutes, half an hour, one hour after a meal. Check it in the morning. Check it at night. Check it before and after exercise. You know, so one of the interesting things, if if I do like a you know zone two cardio type exercise, your blood sugar doesn't budge. It just stays in that sort of you know five ish range. But after a high intensity workout, it it goes up by you know three or four points transiently, which is normal because I'm mobilizing glucose from my glycogen stores in my muscles to give them energy because I'm using my glycolytic and uh, and anaerobic pathways, which is exactly what should be happening. So that's a normal state. Another interesting thing that I, I noticed was I was, had a vacation week and my average sugars were about 5.6. I went back to work and now I've got extra other things on my mind. I started checking my email again. You know, you're balancing extra stuff. And all of a sudden my average sugar is more like 6.1 no nothing else changed apart from probably just some background level of stress so that's interesting in and of itself as well to go okay well obviously stress plays a role and now i'm going to actively look at ways of you know how how can i try to alleviate different stressors or things that are totally unnecessary in in my working life and elsewhere yeah it's an interesting thing to note because it is uh, I was going to say, like, the only time that I saw my glucose really spike was with intense exercise. And the more intense the exercise, the highest, the, the higher the spike in glucose. And it's the same across the board for all stresses, right? Whether right. that's, like, the, the sort of emotional stress you're talking about, heat stress. So, like, if you go hit a hot sauna for 20 to 30 minutes, your up. glucose is going to go up. If you have the stress of exercise, your glucose is going to go up. And while it's a little bit abstract, there's – there's also clearly a connection because clearly your your body is releasing that glucose as a means to aid in combating whatever that stress is, whether it's emotional, whether it's environmental, whether it's like a mechanical stress like exercise. But then also when people are in those more stressful places, like if you think about emotional stress, like food, sugar, hyperpalatable foods is something that they immediately turn to as a form of stress release. And while I, you know, I can't say this for certain, I, I would assume that there's some sort of connection between those relationships of, of your body naturally releases glucose in, into the bloodstream when you are emotionally stressed and when you're emotionally stressed, you're more likely to turn yeah. to, to to crave to seek saying, out those. Let's, types let's get of some food. more sugar in here because I need like I need energy. Like I need to be ready for whatever this stress mounts to. I need to be ready to to fight or to run or whatever it is our animalistic, you know, evolution leads us to do. But of course, it's just like social media stress, yeah, <laughs> or job stress or relationship stress. Uh, which is, you know, totally dysfunctional when for for us in the, in the modern era. It comforts me that you are seemingly unconcerned with an average blood glucose of five point six, because <laughs> mine's always in that range. Like yeah. if my it's my A one C or a non fasting glucose. It's always between like five point two five point six. Uh, and that, to me, that that feels like something that's on the high side. Like I feel like I would be more comfortable if my if my average was you know four point five between four point five and five. The average, yeah, that's probably on the low end for sure. For yeah. sure. So but my, I think that's where people should probably be in an yeah, ideal world. So well, in an ideal world, I would like an A one an A one C of five point one or lower. In an ideal world, mine's five point two. I'm close. Yeah. There's and you know what? To be honest. 
I could probably clean up my diet a little bit. <laughs> like there's definitely some refined carbohydrates. Less hot dogs on your camping <laughs> vacations. We didn't eat the buns. Ah. We just put it in craft dinner. <laughs> oh, I see. Much better. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so like there's there's definitely stuff that I could absolutely eliminate or adapt in my diet to reduce the overall glycemic load for sure, and that might push me down to a 5.1 or a 5 on my A1C if I'm really trying to juice my numbers a little bit. But at that current level, I'm not concerned about my blood glucose. My fasting on my labs was 4.7 in the morning after you know a 12-hour fast from dinner the night before, so that's fine. But the other thing is, and part of the reason I wanted to do this on myself uh, is I like, believe it or not, I see a lot of like wild numbers <laughs> in my patients. I can imagine. So my, like my perspective on what's normal is totally skewed, right? So I've got tons of patients coming to me with insulin resistance and obesity and metabolic syndrome and diabetes and all the rest of it. And when I go and read the literature and I'm trying to figure out you know, what should a normal fasting insulin level be? Like, what should my target be for my patients? And the answer best that I can come up with from the literature is 42 picomoles per liter. Okay, so there are differences in insulin assays from lab to lab, and that's always the, you know, the asterisk on it. But I routinely see 150, 200, 400 as a fasting insulin level. And that's just that's just normal. So somebody's kicking around, they haven't eaten for 12 hours, and their insulin is 10 times what it should be just to keep their blood glucose in an acceptable range. That's like, crazy. It's totally bananas. And so I'm going, is this even possible for my patients to expect this? I'm like, well, I need to actually get some numbers on who I think is healthy. So <laughs> I did my blood work. And fortunately, my fasting insulin is 25. Okay. I'm like, so somebody who's who's active and eats reasonably well and you know uh, is seemingly healthy can't have a normal insulin level. I'm like, okay, this is reassuring to me. So I, I can at least provide, obviously, an N of 1, but I can provide some hope to my patients to go, you know, we, we really do need to focus on getting this down. And this is a really important metric to, to follow. Certainly. Yeah. So what do you... Do you anticipate any potential downsides of somebody doing this kind of tracking? Um, I, I mean, like like anything, you can go too far with being really concerned about numbers because you, you can do unhealthy things to have, quote unquote, good outcomes, right? Like there's all sorts of unhealthy ways to lose weight. There's all sorts of probably unhealthy ways to get your blood glucose numbers in a reasonable range as well, which, you know, if you're going to just totally overhaul your diet, you're like, you know what, because like there's glucose in carbohydrates, I'm just going to go keto or I'm just going to go carnivore even better, right? I'm just going to eat meat. That will fix all my blood glucose. Pro well, you know what? It probably will fix your blood glucose problems. Is it a healthier diet? That's pretty debatable. And it, I and don't it, know that and it is. And it depends. It depends on who the person is, it right? It depends but on where you're starting, yeah. for sure. So if you're starting with the standard American or Canadian diet, which is high in ultra-processed foods and fast food and eating out at restaurants and boxed items, then you know what? It probably is a healthier diet. But 
you can have the optimal diet without having to go to such an extreme or at least you can start to chip away at it and go okay i'm recognizing that every time i go into this box of crackers my blood glucose goes up to 10. well probably should give up that box of crackers and replace it with either a glass of water or ask yourself why is it that i feel like i'm actually snacking right now and address the you know the stress or boredom or other things that are going on that are leading to that or just prepare yourself a good meal of whole foods yeah i think most people or maybe not most hopefully but i would say a non-trivial amount of people are probably so interested in being willfully blind that they'll just learn when to not check it <laughs> like don't don't oh, check sure. it after a sleeve of crackers yeah. just let that but disappear interesting to have that morbid curiosity to just be like and or and you can also go to like you know i want to see how far i can push this right like you do just drink that can of coke and see what happens i mean if you're doing I that do. once go for it like it's it's interesting to see yeah i do yeah. the opposite where i'm like <laughs> let's see how long i can go without eating food and how low i can get my blood sugar and i managed to get it down to like 2.8 2.9 that's impressive without any without any side effects like that's without feeling yeah. weak or so you you must create some ketones pretty easily Actually, I don't. Or do you, do you which check is, your like, I do did. You have a ketone through, through all this? I meter? was I was yeah. using a ketone monitor as well, and yeah. even with my blood sugar that low, I think the highest I ever got my ketones was like one point two, one point three. So that's your your BHB beta hydroxy. Yeah, rate levels, where most yeah. people like to give reference. Uh, you know, most people who would just fast for 24, 36 hours, like they would be up to you know two two to three millimoles. Uh, and I wouldn't even be at half that no matter what I did. And again, it's hard to know what that means. Does that mean that I'm not producing the same amount of ketones as someone else? Or does it just mean that I'm so efficient at how I use them that they're not just floating yeah. and circulating around my bloodstream like they are in someone who, uh, you know, someone who's, who's overweight probably is must much less efficient in actually accessing anything that circulates in their bloodstream oh, so certainly their yeah. concentration would be higher even though the production might be the same or or lesser than mine yeah and that's where metric like i think the majority of what is helpful is accurate enough for people like even when i think about asking the question of well how 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 accurate do you think it is compared to uh like blood measurements i'm sure the the changes even if the the even if the specific measurements are not as accurate as a blood measurement, the fluctuations are probably more than you need to understand to, to, to make the necessary changes based yeah. off of, of what you eat. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's super interesting stuff. And, and I don't think anyone would need to do it more than two weeks. I mean, 90 bucks yeah. isn't, isn't cheap, but right. for what you get out of it, it is. And if you haven't already knowing that you have a problem and that you want to resolve that problem if those two things are currently not enough to get you to take the necessary actions then 90 bucks 100 bucks is a small investment to make to try something that might might highlight the effects of of the actions you take in a way that that push you to start taking action and i find for most people uh not all but for most people having those sorts of immediate feedback metrics and see like oh when i eat this this happens 
when I eat this, that doesn't happen. Right. It, it, making those sort of informed choices, like I think it's the type of thing that can that can really change the way someone so behaves. To, to really get the most out of it. So some, some practical tip then would be get some fasting blood work done. So at least know your hemoglobin A1C level. Okay, so you know that going in before you change anything. If you're going to use the monitor, don't change anything for the first week, but then plan to make some changes the second week. But have a plan going in, which is you know, you kind of have an idea for the type of changes you want to make already, so you're already prepared to do the, the sort of cooking. You've got the, the ingredients on hand for the, the changes that you want to make, and then make those changes for the second week and see what, what changes. And then, great, you don't have to do that anymore. And if, if you've seen some, some good success during that second week, continue doing that and then have your A1C checked again four months down the line and see if it actually moved the needle in the right direction for your average sugars overall. Yeah, and you can track stuff through the app. So make sure you're tracking. So you're actually putting in like, sure. this is what I ate. Uh, and f- when I, like I haven't done this in a long time, but when I did it, like when you make the note, it puts it in the timeline export. So right. when you have like your 24 hours of rises and falls, it shows exactly where your notes are of at this time I ate this, at that time I ate that. Uh, and I think it's worth experimenting with things too. Like what happens when you only eat different to like a different type of carbohydrate? Like what happens if I eat a bowl of fruit versus like a bowl of rice versus like a bowl of root vegetables versus like processed carbohydrates if that's something that you routinely eat try that as well and then try and like mixed meals and like high protein meals and high fat meals and just play around and see you know see number one how your body responds and number two how you feel because even if something gives you a favorable glucose response but makes you sick to your stomach for 40 (laughs) minutes later then it's probably not going to be a net win to eat that way but it's good like if if it's something that is of any interest to you, that type of self-experimentation I can find is is very informative and directive in people's nutrition in a way that like just following a random diet isn't going to be because it's not really about you. It's not unique to you. It's not giving you information that's most relevant to you. It's just like, here, follow this diet. Yeah. And there's no feedback there. So, so it's an extra way, I mean, apart from just your weight, which is the one metric that everyone loves to follow for success of, of this diet or whatever intervention you're doing, this yeah. gives you, I think, much more insightful data. Yeah, and it's and it's immediate, right? Because yeah. like weight loss, you might lose weight in, you know, a week, two weeks, uh, but most people have to wait, you know, six, 12, six months, a year until like something meaningful well, so happens. You, so I often prescribe a 500 calorie deficit for people based on our projections for their total daily energy expenditure. And if you stick to that, that'll give you about a pound per week weight loss. Yeah, so that's not that's not huge rapid weight loss, but it's sustainable. Well, and not to mention with, you know, fluctuations in water retention and all these sorts of things, yeah. you can be losing weight like a real weight and gaining it on the scale <laughs> from week to week. So that's this true. is what I mean. Like the time course of actually seeing legitimate weight loss is so long that most people can't stay in it long enough making those difficult changes when right. there is no there's there's no indication of success as far as they're concerned. Whereas right. like this is a way where you can see indications of success every single day. 
and know that if I keep eating in a way where it's, you know, where I'm controlling these metrics, you're going to get the metric that you really care about down the line. But there's some amount of like confidence and motivation in that confidence of, okay, I see when I do this, something good happens. When I do this, something not good happens. I'm going to keep trying to do more of the good stuff and I can see that it's happening the way that I want it to happen. And yeah. hopefully that can keep winning people's sales long enough to, to get them to the real goal. Yeah. Some people. Some I mean, people. Some people it won't change for, but some people it might be the thing that makes the change. Absolutely. And you don't get paid by uh, Abbott Labs because that's going to be the accus- accusation that this is some sort of like I'm a Abbott, big, Abbott I'm a, Labs uh, uh, promotion. I'm a big time shill <laughs> for, uh, for Abbott. Nope. Haven't received any funds from uh, anyone. Just but if to- anyone's listening and wants to pay me anything, <laughs> sure, I'll be there for you. Yeah, we. Yeah. Uh, we're, we've been, <laughs> How much money are we making from this podcast? We've been by the way, a title sponsor since the inception of this podcast. Yeah, so if if you're listening and you want to be the get the naming rights to this podcast, hey, Andrew's the guy. Hit He'll us, put his face right on up. the box. Yeah. Anything but, else you want to add here? Well, I think you should go uh, right now and put a trademark on. Sludge water. Sludge water. Or your, uh, your slurry you've got over there. You don't like S asterisk asterisk T water? <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe that's better. Yeah, yeah I put that. We'll have to it put is. it to a focus group. Mud water's got competition. <laughs> The content provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical advice and is not intended to be a substitute for independent professional medical judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I mean, clearly not when I'm speaking. I'm not a doctor, but that goes for the real doctor, Dr. Appleton as well. You should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions or concerns you may have regarding your health. You should never disregard or delay seeking medical advice relating to treatment or standard of care because of information contained in or transmitted, huh? Transmitted? Yes, information contained in or transmitted in this podcast.